Well, this morning we're back in First Peter after uh, an absence for about uh, or a break from about five weeks as we looked through some of those Reformation convictions. I'm very glad to be back in First Peter. I wish we could have been back in a slightly easier passage, but that's okay. The, the world and the culture in which we presently find ourselves is one that is in many places characterized by ungracious absolutes. This is particularly obvious to me and I think to you as well, probably through news and social media outlets. We find ourselves constantly polarized by politics and religious belief and cultural opinions. And in these various arenas, on the news, in social media, uh, in print publications, we find persons and parties trying to push uh, all kinds of people into one group or another. And groups in that process are wrongly and ungraciously characterized and, and labeled with presumptuous labels. Things like all Democrats are crooks and socialists, and all Republicans are misogynist corporatists. All Christians are ignorant idiots. All atheists are stupid. All Muslims are terrorists, and so on and so on. I could think of many more, but while none of these absolutist statements, polarizing positions are true, as followers of Jesus, we understand implicitly another set of absolutes that we can say certainly are true. All people are made in the image of God. God does love all people, irrespective of their race, nationality, immigration status, or gender. Christ has died so that sinners of all stripes might be uh, saved by trusting in him, receiving forgiveness for their sins, and being uh, reconciled to God. We can say that all followers of Jesus are are to display wholehearted love for God and sacrificial love for neighbor. This set of biblical absolutes, as we live them out as followers of Jesus, will inevitably set us against many sorts of people. It will cause friction in our lives with other people that we know. And the challenge for we who are Christians living in a world that is falsely polarized and arbitrarily polarizing, the challenge is for us to endure the strange looks and the harsh words and the biting threats and the physical harm that will come our way for living lives faithful to Jesus. Rather than joining the world and creating and entertaining these false absolutes for groups of individuals who are not like us, for people who don't share our convictions and opinions, instead we as followers of Christ are called to respond to the friction that we encounter for our obedience to God with Christ-like gentleness and grace and with countercultural discipline in the world. We don't get to respond to those who despise us with despising. We don't get to respond... To hate with hate. Instead, we are to respond to it with gentleness, grace, and discipline in the world. First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse three, uh, 13. Would you stand with me this morning as we read God's word? Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this to the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. God add blessing to the reading of his word. Be seated this morning. So as followers of Jesus, knowing that there will be in this world friction, that there will be opposition, even accusation to us uh, in response to our living in faith and faithfulness to Christ, the Christian should endure this suffering two different ways. First, from verses 13 through 22 of chapter 3, we see that the Christian is to endure suffering with gentleness and grace, with Christ-like gentleness and grace. And this we do in a few different ways. We begin, as we see in verses 13 and the first part of 14, by knowing that suffering is a blessing. Know and recognize that your suffering for Christ, your suffering for living faithfully is a blessing. Peter asks this rhetorical question at the beginning of verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Certainly, he asks this question. It's a rhetorical question with an answer that's already assumed. Peter knows and he recognizes that physical harm can and often does come as a result of earnestly living for Christ in this life. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for for, for what is good? Well, Peter, lots of people. But his question is not about the immediate moment or, or even of this life or people that we encounter who despise us for our faith, but in regard to eternally. That is to say, no one can really or eternally harm the Christian for his commitment to Christ. Far from it. Instead, the, the, the one that we, we see biblically, the one who suffers for Christ's sake in this life, will not be cursed, will not be hurt, but will be blessed. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, as he lists out these beatitudes, right? These attitudes you ought to want to be. Uh, he says in Matthew 5 verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Christian, know that you're suffering for the faith. Your, the opposition, the friction you face in this world for your faithfulness to Jesus is a blessing. The life of the Christian is one of constant paradox, it seems. Though it might appear like suffering and blessing in this life are polar opposites, in the life of the one who follows Jesus, they're actually quite good friends. Christian, you can know that as you endure opposition for your faith in Christ, you are actually being blessed now in this life by knowing that your life is falling in line with Christ's life. 
But also, we, we should not just know that in our suffering we are being blessed, but let us also look outside of our own context of very mild suffering in the United States for our faith to that of Christians who suffer loss of life and loss of family for their faith in other parts of the world. Let us pray this morning that God's blessing on our brothers and sisters in, persecuted, uh, in countries where Christians are persecuted around the world, that God's blessing on them now and in eternity would overflow in their lives to help them continually endure for the cause of Christ. Our suffering is nothing compared to how believers in other countries suffer uh, and are persecuted for their faith today. So let us, let us use that as a way of, of, of gauging and evaluating um, uh, our own suffering and opposition in this world. Let us see the blessing that we have for not enduring as much suffering as others. And let us also then be moved to pray for God's continued blessing on those who are enduring uh, much harder circumstances with great faithfulness. So you can endure suffering with gentleness and grace as you understand that your suffering is actually blessing. But also you can continue to do this, uh, as we see in the second half of verse 14 through verse 16 of chapter 3, by fighting fear of suffering with confidence in Christ. Fight your fear of suffering with confidence in Christ. Peter says in chapter three fourteen, have no fear of them, do not be troubled. Literally, he says, do not fear their fear or be troubled. By their threats, but instead, in verse 15, honor Christ the Lord in your hearts as holy. You see the contrast that Peter is setting up here in these verses? Worship of Jesus and confidence in his lordship is the antidote and the opposite to fear of suffering. Are you afraid of suffering? Counter fear of suffering with confidence in Christ. Are you confident in Christ? Good. You should have very little fear of suffering. Here we see a work of replacement in the hearts of believers. Fear of the Lord, worship of Christ as king, the risen Jesus, replaces fear of man. And it replaces reverence for anti-Christian insults and potential torture even in this life. In this way, our own confidence in the certainty of the salvation of G, uh, that Jesus provides far outweighs the temporary pain of suffering at the hands of men. And so in our confidence in Christ, Peter then encourages us to be prepared with a reason for the eternal hope that we have in Christ. Look at uh, uh, the second half of uh, verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter says, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that you have within you. The word he uses there is the same word that we get our English words apology and apologetics from. Peter is here saying, have a reasonable explanation for why you have the hope of salvation that you have. You will endure suffering. Do it with gentleness and grace, ready to give a reason for why you believe what you believe. Christians are called to give a defense for their faith, for, for why they are a Christian, when it doesn't seem logical or even helpful in society to be one. The ready answer that Christians are to have is to be given with, as Peter says, gentleness and respect for the one who is asking. And so there are two implications from the text here this morning. Number one, you cannot be an undercover Christian. 
Your faith in Jesus and loving devotion to him should be clearly knowable. Your neighbors should not be surprised to find out that you are a follower of Christ. Your coworkers with whom you spend 40 or more hours a week should not be surprised to know that you are a Christian. Your in-laws should not be surprised to know that you are a Christian. You don't get to be an undercover believer. The believers in the first century were not undercover believers then, and we are not called to be undercover believers now. Second implication... Christians who are openly Christian, publicly Christian, we are claiming Christ publicly. You don't have the right to be a jerk about it. When people ask you in genuine and authentic ways, or even with condescending sarcasm as to why you are a Christian, why you trust Jesus, you are to answer them with all of the love of Christ and not with any anger or insult or despising or reviling for who they are. Just because you know Jesus doesn't make you elite. Just because you know Christ and are saved by by him through faith in him, that doesn't make you special. You're just saved. You're just forgiven. And if God did not show anger and hate to us in saving us through Christ, you don't get to show anger or hate or despising to those people who don't like you for your faith in Christ. Christian, you can't be an undercover Christian and you can't be a jerk about it. In your heart and in your mind this morning, As you strive to endure suffering with grace and gentleness, replace in your mind and in your heart this morning fear of man with worship of Christ. Replace fear of man with worship of Jesus. This you can do by regularly reminding yourself of why you trusted Christ to begin with. I want you this morning to begin thinking about this question and and an answer to this question. Why am I a Christian? Whether you've been a believer for six months or 60 years or even longer, you should have an answer to the question, why am I a Christian? What good is it? What good does it do me to be a follower of Christ in this world? Certainly we see that Christians are losing influence in our culture today and that there's little respect even from cultural forces for Christ or the gospel or people who are faithful to them. So friend, why are you a Christian? You don't gain anything by being a part of worship this morning in the world. In fact, you, you could stand to get fired or miss out on a promotion someday or in some countries. You, you stand to be arrested, beaten, killed for attending a worship service like this. So, friend, why are you a Christian? Following Christ isn't likely to get you elected to public office. It's not likely to get you promoted at work. So why are you a follower of Jesus? Friend, you who are here this morning, you're not a Christian. Maybe you're at best ambivalent to Jesus. Maybe you don't even know why you're here this morning. You should ask yourself the question, why you ought to want to be a Christian? If these things uh, you can expect for being a Christian are true. If you don't know Christ and you can expect to be hated or or opposed, insulted for knowing Christ, you do well to ask yourself the evaluative question. Why should I even want to be a Christian? You who are believers this morning, members of our church, in your worship guide, there at the bottom of the the front sheet, you have a little bit of space and a question. Uh, I already gave you some homework this week, but I'm giving you more. In the space that's here, you might have to use the the sermon notes page, that is blank lines or whatever. I want you to ask and answer this question for yourself this week. Why am I a Christian? What good does does it do me to follow Christ? You need to have an answer. Peter says, be ready with a, with a, a, a defense, always prepared to, to give an answer for the hope that is in you. So, Christian, write out your reason for the hope that is in you this week. Maybe you don't know where to begin with that. C.S. Lewis said, 
uh, who was a former atheist con- uh, converted to Christianity, he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun also rises, not merely because I see it, but because by it, I see everything. Um, C.S. Lewis has said much better than I could, but the, the same reason that I believe that Christ is, is really the risen Lord, that Christianity is true. I believe that the gospel, I believe the gospel and I trust in Jesus because Jesus is real and the gospel is true. Friends, that's why your pastor believes it. This word from God that we call the Bible is the best source of knowledge and the best explanation we have about why the world is the way that it is, why we exist at all, who God is and how we can relate to him. Believing this word will set me against many who deny it or create alternative truths or, or, or different understanding of why we exist. But I would rather, friends, I would rather hold to what is true and endure great difficulty for it than live an easy life for what is false. I encourage you this week, answer that question for yourself. Why am I a Christian? Why, what, what good is Christ to me at all? So we can endure with gentleness and grace by... Knowing that suffering is blessing. By replacing fear of man with worship of Christ. And then finally in in verses 17 through 22 of chapter 3. By entrusting ourselves to the will of God. We endure with gentleness and grace by entrusting ourselves to God's will. Peter says in verse 17. It is better to suffer for doing good. That is for living publicly and graciously for Christ. If that be God's will. Than to suffer for doing evil. So understand this, God does will, he does desire that we suffer in varying degrees and respects for our public and gracious worship of Christ. Christian, you can count on it. You will have friction in your life from others for your devotion to Christ. But suffering for Jesus and for godly living at the hands of men is far better than enduring punishment either in this life or in the life to come from God for doing what is evil. So, Peter says, entrust your life and your suffering to the will of God. Knowing that, we have an example in Jesus. You want to know how to do this? How to trust your life to the will of God? Even in the midst of suffering, you look to Christ, your Savior. In verses 18 through 22, we have a sort of uh, parenthesis in this passage that explains why we can trust God in our suffering and why it is good, why suffering is good. Plainly, because Christ suffered according to the will of God. He who was perfectly righteous, perfectly sinless, died once for all, for those who are unrighteous and sinful, as we see there in verse 18. But Jesus was also physically raised from the dead and has returned to heaven to the right hand of the Father, where he rules and reigns over all things. Peter entrusted his life to God because he saw with his own eyes Jesus' death and resurrection and his return to heaven. And we are to trust God's will even in our suffering for the very same reason. We have have eyewitness accounts to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension to heaven. We have trustworthy uh, accounts. testimony as to the the validity of those historical facts and so you can know that christ really died for sins and really rose from the dead because we have a a a reliable word that tells us so now i would really like to skip over verses 19 through 21 but i don't believe that the lord would allow me what's going on in these verses 
Certainly, these are some of the most difficult to, uh, to understand and have caused no little consternation uh, among Christians and theologians over the last 2,000 years. Martin Luther once wrote about this text that it is a wonderful text, uh, but a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. So let me tell you what I think Peter means. In verses 19 through 21, let me just, I'll just read these again briefly so, so reminded of it. So the end of verse 20, uh, Jesus was put to death in the flesh, made to, uh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's deal first with verses uh, 19 and 20. What is Peter saying here? Uh, Very briefly, in these verses, Peter gives a short explanation of events that are related to Jesus' death that is, admittedly, somewhat difficult for us to understand. We may ask questions, when and where and how did Jesus proclaim to these spirits in prison? Who are these spirits in prison? Where is this prison? And how in the world do they relate to Noah? Well, there's three options for, basically three options for understanding this passage. Two which are valid, the third which is not. The first valid explanation is that Peter may mean here that Noah, the, you remember Noah from Genesis, the flood guy built the ark, right? That Noah preached repentance in his own day, through the spirit of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, to human beings whose, whose spirits, after they died in the flood, are now being held in prison, waiting for a spiritual prison, waiting for the final judgment. Those who believe uh, this understanding of this verse uh, point to places like 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, and 1 Peter 1, 11, where Peter calls Noah a herald of righteousness and refers to the Holy Spirit speaking through the Old Testament prophets. So that's option one, that, that what Peter's saying is that Jesus was preaching through the Holy Spirit in the life of Noah as he built the ark and uh, proclaimed salvation through repentance and turning from sin. Or, second option, and, and I'll say that this is the majority view among scholars, that Peter is intending here that Jesus, in his spirit, so after his crucifixion, prior to his resurrection, Jesus, in his spirit, went to a spiritual prison for evil spirits to proclaim victory over sin and death and Satan. Now, in favor of this argument, uh, New Testament scholars point out that that word spirits, pneumocene, that Peter uses here, is used exclusively in the New Testament only to refer to spirit beings, that is, supernatural spirit beings, and not humans who's, who, who have died, not referring to human spirits. That word prison is used uh, in other places in the New Testament as a place, as a holding place for Satan and for fallen angels. And so likely what is going on here is that Jesus, uh, after his crucifixion, before his resurrection, in his spirit, went to this spiritual holding place where God had, uh, uh, had relegated or, or bound evil spirits who roamed the earth during the time of Genesis. Uh, like in Genesis 6, we have the sons of God that had inappropriate sexual relations with uh, the daughters of man. And so God judges them. He sends those evil spirits to a spiritual holding place. Jesus, after his crucifixion, before his resurrection, in the spirit, goes to the spiritual holding place to proclaim victory over sin. That all of these evil spirits' attempts to ruin humanity and ruin God's redemptive plan have not worked, and Jesus is king. 
There's a third option. So let me just say this. Whether you hold to the first option there or the second option, or you just don't know what to do with that, that's okay. We can all have fellowship together in this, okay? The third option that is not acceptable is this. Some portend that Peter is advocating for some a second chance at salvation even after death. That Jesus, after he was crucified, before the resurrection, in in the spirit, went to a spiritual holding place and proclaimed the gospel to people uh, who had previously died, whose spirits were being held there so that they could respond to it in faith and be saved. Uh, I don't know any orthodox and conservative Bible scholar who holds to that opinion whatsoever because it contradicts so much other biblical evidence. So... That's, that's what we have in verses 19 and 20. But what about in verse 21 in this issue of baptism saving us? Peter says in verse 21, Baptism, which corresponds to this, corresponds to the flood, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, the correspondence between baptism and Noah is fairly clear, I think. Noah was saved uh, through water in the ark. And believers in Jesus are brought from spiritual death to life through faith in Jesus with the commensurate, with the corresponding act of being baptized. Peter is, hear me say this, Peter is not saying that the act of baptism being dunked in water itself saves us. There's nothing salvific or saving about it, but... That by faith in Jesus and his righteousness, we in being lowered into the water and brought back up are identifying with Christ in his death and his resurrection. And in so doing, we are by faith making a plea to God for a clean conscience. We are asking for forgiveness and that we do in obedience to what Jesus has called us to do. I know that that's really confusing. We spent a lot of time there, but I think it's helpful for you as you read your Bible to talk about those things. But all of this comment, I want us to understand this and not get distracted. All of this comment on where Christ went and what he preached and the correspondence of baptism to Noah's salvation is all intended to give Christians a clear picture of the total and complete, the very real victory of Jesus over sin and death in his suffering and in his resurrection. So that we who have trusted Jesus and likewise suffer for following him in obedience, obedience even in baptism, so that we can have confidence that we really, totally, completely are saved from our sin. Peter doesn't include this to, 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 uh, uh, to be a heretic or to cause confusion in the church. He includes these things to give you, Christian, confidence that Jesus really did die. He really was raised. That your baptism as a show of the faith that you have placed in Christ is, is a vital part. It doesn't save you, but it's a vital part of your obedience to Christ. And so, Christian, if you have followed Jesus by faith in him, you've been baptized in obedience to his command, um, you know that Jesus really died and really was raised from the dead, you can have confidence that replaces the fear of suffering in the world because of who you know has saved you. So here's the point for us today. A deficient understanding or a deficient knowledge of what Christ has accomplished through his suffering, his death on the cross and resurrection, a deficient knowledge of Jesus in this way will keep you from suffering well. It will prevent you from suffering faithfully. If you do not trust that Christ really overcame sin and death, you will fear the prospect of suffering your whole life, Christian. If you are legitimately scared, not, not, not just like you, you have a little bit of concern about suffering, that you might, but you're literally scared. You stay awake at night for fear of suffering for your faith. It is quite possible that you don't really have confidence in Christ who has overcome death victoriously for you. Friend, this morning, I, I, I'm telling you, fight fear of suffering with confidence in Christ. It's the instruction Peter gave to the church. It's the instruction that God's word still gives to us today. 
We can endure. We are called to endure suffering with gentleness and grace in this world. But secondly, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we see that we're called to endure suffering in this world with countercultural discipline. With countercultural discipline. And this we do in a few different ways. Verses 1 and 2, we see that we need to begin by thinking differently about sin and holiness. Peter says, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has uh, suffered, excuse me, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter carries over the idea of Christ's suffering, his uh, passion, his death and resurrection here into chapter four to encourage believers to have the same sort of mindset as Jesus The one who endures, the Christian who endures, even embraces suffering as a part of God's will and his blessing in our life, demonstrates that our life is no longer governed by sinful, selfish desires, but instead by the will of God and the working of the Holy Spirit in us. When Peter says that the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, he doesn't mean that we'll ever be completely done with sin in this life. He doesn't mean that you will stop uh, uh, struggling with sin in your life. But what he is saying is, if you're suffering for your faith, it's likely because you have done away with the old way of living. You're wanting to live in repentance. You're wanting to live in faithfulness to Jesus. You're wanting your life to look like his, and you're receiving suffering. You're receiving social friction for that. So, Christian, how are you doing with your view of sin and holiness today? Do you maintain in your mind an artificial separation between days and actions that are holy or sacred and things that are secular or things that lack spiritual significance? Or have you made the all-important mental shift to understand that all of life for the Christian is sacred, that Christ is in all of it? Have you made the, the, the... conviction, if you come to the conviction in your own heart and mind that God's will does not just govern our Sunday morning church activity, but also our Monday morning meetings and our Friday night recreation. Christian, do you want to be done with sin every day of the week? Do you want to be done with sin every moment of your life so as to live for the will of God each and every moment? Now, I don't have the answer to this question for you. These are hard questions. But you need to ask them. We need to reflect on these things in our life. Do I really want to be done with my sin? These are necessary questions for for the believer in Jesus to ask that help us to evaluate and continue to reorient our lives around God's will. These are questions that we ask of ourselves prayerfully that God would show us areas of our life that we need to continue to walk in repentance. Things that we need to change. So friend, suffer with countercultural discipline by changing the way that you think about sin and holiness. But secondly, and, and, and in connection to that, have no sentiment for your former sins. Have no sentiment for your former sins. Verses 3 through 5, Peter says, The time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. There in verse 3, Peter says, Look, church, enough time has gone by for living for sin and self like so many other non-believers still do. He gives a list even of the things that there is no longer any more time for doing. This list of various sins ought not even come to a surprise, come as a surprise to us today. We still see the culture around us uh, uh, launching full scale into this kind of living, these kinds of sins. 
Peter warns the church that when we give these things up, when we give these sins up, when we repent of them to live for Christ, that those who we formerly sinned with will look at us strangely and wonder what's wrong with us. What's wrong with us that we don't keep doing all the fun stuff that we used to do with them. Christian, when you turn down a night of bar crawling with your best friends because you're now living for Christ, your friends who got drunk with you two weeks ago will be, surpri- will be surprised by your new priorities. Likely they will mock you for being a Puritan and a prude, a hypocrite and a holy roller. Maybe you've endured such names in your life. But Peter is reminding us here that there has been enough time for living destructively already. Now, as you trust Jesus, it's time to live for something far better. But it's funny, though, isn't it? How we get sentimental about our sins. We remember all the fun that we had with our friends as we drank and smoked and destroyed our bodies. We flirt with fondly remembering past relationships with boyfriends or girlfriends that were anything but holy. We think with regret on the wealth that we gave up by leaving a lucrative job to follow the calling of God in our lives. We bemoan the freedom to do what we want when we want because we got married and now we have to do what they want when they want. I want to, uh, I want to back up on this second. I love doing everything my wife wants to do when she wants to do it. And it's way better than any of the options I would come up for myself. But Christian, understand this, understand this, holding sentiment, thinking fondly, remembering with, with delight, the sins that you used to commit the way you used to live apart from Christ, thinking fondly about the things that you have repented of is like missing your leg being stuck in a bear trap. God says to Cain in Genesis 4, as he's, he's, as he's plotting to kill his brother Abel, sin is crouching at your door and it's desirous for you, but you must master it. Friends, sin is not a pretty kitty that you can let sit on your lap and, and pet for an afternoon. Sin is a roaring lion that wants to eat your face. Stop playing with sin. Stop flirting with sin. Stop thinking sentimentally about the sin of your past. As for those who mock and slander you for your obedience to Jesus, even those who may have you beaten and arrested and maybe one day killed for your obedience to Jesus, Peter says, don't concern yourself with them or their threats and don't try to vindicate your own pursuit for Christ. Instead, you look squarely ahead in the direction of Jesus and you trust God to judge rightly and perfectly all those who seek to harm us for Christ's sake. Third and finally, we are to, in verse 6, live for eternity with the resurrection in mind. How do you endure suffering with countercultural discipline? By living now for eternity with the resurrection of the dead in mind. Our resurrection from the dead in the same manner as Christ, to live forever with Christ, is the goal that we have our hearts and our eyes set clearly on as believers. That's the hope of our salvation. That's what we're living toward. God's perfect judgment and his final reward for believers is the hope of those who believe the gospel and are now even dead, Peter says. Verse 6, he says, this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. What does that mean? That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Here in verse 6, 
this matter of, of preaching the gospel to the dead is not ultimately about a second chance for salvation after death. Rather, we should understand the verse this way. Uh, we should read it in, in this manner. For this is why the gospel was previously preached even to those who are now dead. So Peter's intent here is to remind the church that believers who died trusting the gospel, placing their own hope in the resurrection, the same way that believers who are still living are placing their hope in the resurrection, still have the same goal. We have the same outcome. In this way, the gospel doesn't have a different meaning or a different goal for those who have died in Christ or those who are currently living in Christ. Rather, all who are in Christ are living now with certain hope and expectation of eternity. A hope that is beginning to be realized for those who have died in Christ before us. So I wonder this morning, friend, what is the focus of your living today? What's that thing, what's that point on the horizon of your life that you are steadfastly marching toward? What is that thing in the distance that is fueling the decisions and direction of your life? Now, regardless of what that point is, if it isn't Christ and eternity, that point will always be shifting in your life. For many, that point starts as a secure job, and then it shifts to family, and then raising successful kids, and then funding a retirement, and then dying well. You see, that point keeps shifting. For others, your next point is the next drink. It's that next high. It's that next meaningful relationship with a boy or a girl, a man or a woman. Christians, even we who love Jesus, places goals in our life, achievements and benchmarks that have nothing to do with eternity. How often do you wake up on Monday morning worrying about your 401k? These temporary acquisitions, these temporary mile markers in this physical life, these time-constrained goals, friends, can all be taken away in a moment. Some of those things that you are looking forward to, that you are hoping for, that are, that are helping you get through the day today, some of those will even lead to your death. None of these things has the ability to aid us to endure hardship. In fact, all of them will, will keep us from enduring, enduring hardship well. Only with our focus, only with that point on the horizon in our life being that of Christ, only with that will we be able to endure suffering for our faith with grace and gentleness and discipline. Friend, you who are here this morning looking for that fixed point to orient your life. You're not yet a Christian. You're wondering what this Jesus stuff is all about. You're, you're maybe curious about God or what he intends for you. You who are looking for a fixed point to orient your life, you, you, you've placed your hope in everything but Jesus. You've been disappointed by it all. I would invite you this morning to stop wandering and wondering and instead find a fixed point that is, that is not stuck in this life but extends far beyond it. Find a point that is rooted not in your life and in your achievements, but in the life of Jesus, the Son of God, who died for you and rose from the dead, and in what he accomplished for you. Make the salvation that he provides by trusting in him that fixed point of your life. Friend, I invite you this morning to put a stake of faith in the ground today by repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ as that fixed point for your life now and for eternity. Christian, may we, may we do the same and continue to do the same. Church, we can count on suffering for our faithfulness to Jesus from a world that loves to villainize differences.
You can count on it. But we must endure, we are called to endure that hardship, that suffering with gentleness and with grace as God has dealt gently and graciously with us. And we're commanded to hold on to Christ with unflinching integrity and discipline even when we're insulted for it. Brothers and sisters, we can endure for Christ like Christ. But our hearts and our minds must be totally confident in Christ and in his resurrection for us to do so. Friend, endure suffering with gentleness and grace. Endure suffering with countercultural discipline. Do it because Christ your King has died for you and risen again. Do it with confidence in Him. Let's pray.